Well, as, as strange as this may sound, um, it is really comforting to be sitting here with you, um, knowing that you're out there. And um, the, the fact that we get to connect like this today is really a beautiful thing. I'm really grateful for the technology and the capacity that we have to do this. Um, it, it, is, it is an unprecedented time, but it's amazing that we get to do this together. Um, there, there are so many good things that are happening right now through B4. And, and I just wanna take a minute before I dive into the message to share with you some of the good stuff that's happening. Right now, um, we are being um, chosen to be the central location for food distribution for the Beaverton School District. And we're partnering with some other churches. We've invited them to come help us in this so they can build relationship with the schools. Um, that's a beautiful thing. We've already been feeding lots of families. I think starting on Thursday, um, we're gonna begin to get 35,000 pounds of food every single Thursday that we're gonna distribute. Um, the Red Cross is gonna start being here this next week doing a blood drive because there's a shortage in the hospitals. Um, we have so many things that are happening online right now. There are groups for adults like Joe was mentioning earlier. Um, there are things happening for students in our student ministries, middle school and high school, very specific things, uh, whether that's on Instagram or on the website. There are um, opportunities for young adults. There's things that are happening for kids and resources for families, um, ways that you can connect as a family, ways that you can learn and grow together as a family. Um, on our website, there's just so many different places where you can engage in community and grow in your faith during this season. And so I wanna encourage you to do that. Um, those are really amazing things. You can get help. You can sign up to be part of a solution and help us fix things and work through things in our community. Um, and all of those things are really great. But um, the truth is, none of them are a substitute for what happens when we gather together. And so while we're being innovative and we're being creative, I'm really looking forward to the day that we can gather in this space together again and be the gathered community of faith. And so until that time, we're gonna keep doing this and we're gonna be faithful in doing what we do. Now, if you've been with us for a while, then you know that we're in a series of, of messages that we're calling Waypoints. And, uh, and we're looking at seven miracles or seven signs that Jesus performed in the book of John, and we're calling them waypoints because ultimately what John was doing in this book was he was leading us to a particular place where we would be able to see something specific. He's taking us in a particular direction. And so he looks at the biography of Jesus, the, the life of Jesus in a very distinct way, and he's trying to draw us to some conclusions. We're, we're going to make a decision. We have a destination that's out in front of us. And these miracles that we've been looking at are really just... The, the pathway that we're taking to get to this particular spot. So, so there's this sense in, in all of it, there's something building, there's a tension that's growing, there's something that's happening amidst this whole narrative. And the tension is building towards what we'll be looking at in the next couple of weeks. And that's the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. But, but in the middle of this, I want us to understand that, that this something is being built here. There's the wedding at Cana. Then there's the healing at the, of the nobleman's son. There's um, the man at the pool of Bethesda. There's the feeding of the 5,000. There's the walking on the water. All of these things have interesting significance. And we're going to talk more about those in the days ahead. But all of this is building and it's taking us someplace specific and all of it is connected. All of it is telling us one thing and that's what we're getting at. So today um, we're coming to the sixth waypoint, the sixth sign or the sixth miracle of Jesus that's found in the book of John. And this is huge. What happens here um, is absolutely amazing. Um, it's unbelievably relevant to what we're having, this like current cultural climate that we find ourselves in right now. Um, it, is, it is a powerful thing that's taking place. And in fact, let me just say this. It's great for those of us that are 
um, a part of the faith. We're already following Jesus. But if you're somebody who's exploring faith right now, if you're curious, like you ask questions like, is the Bible really valid? Is it trustworthy? Um, if, if, if you wondered, is Jesus really who Christians claim he is? Or does Jesus ever claim those things? then this is gonna be a fascinating message for you. So if you've been exploring and asking questions, I think you're gonna really appreciate some of what happens here. So, so here's what I want you to do. Now, if you, have a, if you happen to have a Bible with you, I want you to open up to John chapter nine. That's actually where this miracle takes place. And in a moment, we're gonna start walking through. The, today, we're actually gonna go through the entire chapter. But while you're turning there, I wanna give you a little bit of context that's gonna make this story even more impactful and, and come to life in new ways. In fact, I get really excited about some of this stuff and uh, I might nerd out on you just for a little bit, um, but this is so good. This is such good stuff that uh, I, can't, I can't not share this with you. So um, what we're about to read, these events that are about to take place, um, this waypoint, it happens during a particular religious festival or religious feast of the Jews um, by the way, this was a part of the rhythm of the Hebrew life. There were these festivals or feasts that were, they had some sort of religious, some sort of spiritual or historical uh, significance. And they would gather, people would pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they would have these massive festivals. And so this miracle that we're seeing here takes place during one of these festivals. And this particular festival is called the Feast of the Tabernacles. And I won't get into all the details and where that comes from the book of Leviticus right now, but, but, but there's one significant aspect to this feast that was kind of a marker. It was sort of a, a prime element of what was going on. And it was the significance of light during this festival. And so let me just explain this to you. Um, during each night of the feast, which this is a seven day festival, there are these four giant bowls like torches that are around the temple in Jerusalem. And, and they would pile up stacks of firewood, literally 120 pieces of firewood. Um, they would be set up and then they would be lit on fire and these massive flames would rise up and it would illuminate Jerusalem at night. So, so I just want you to go back in time and imagine, I mean, this is happening uh, before electricity. Obviously this is happening when, um, when the sun set, so did, uh, so did the light. And so imagine the uniqueness that during this festival, this would be like this festival of light where the flames are, are burning in the sky and it's flickering throughout the city. Uh, even people could see up on the hill, there were men that would have torches and they would have torches that were built with the worn out robes of the priests. And they would, uh, they would inflame those and, and march around and dance around. And so there's this significance of this light in Jerusalem. So... Jesus performs this miracle and says what he's about to say during this particular event. There's light in darkness. So Jesus meets this man and this man has been blind since the day he was born. His eyes have never taken in the beauty of the world. He's never seen light. He lives in darkness. He meets a man who lives in darkness during this festival of light. You can already see where this thing is going. So that's where the story takes place. And that's how it begins, which you're going to see. This is so beautiful how it all connects together. So I just want to start reading. Um, and then we're going to explain things as we walk through this passage. But we're going to start in John chapter 9. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It says this. It says, As he passed by, he saw a man born blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, 
this man or his parents that he was born blind. So, so why is this guy blind? Is it something that he did or is it something that his, that his parents did? And this is kind of an interesting question. It's actually a really good question coming from them um, because it, it, it's, it's confronting and addressing a tension that I believe exists in and around religion and religious thinking. Um, now, I just wanna, I wanna remind you that whenever we use the word religion here, um, we're referring to any system that's created by humanity to, to connect to God through like rituals and rules and rites and ceremonies. Um, it's, it's defined by this sort of basic concept that uh, if I do all these things, if I jump through all these hoops, if I obey all of these rules, then God will approve of me and, and then maybe bless me, um, which also means the opposite is true, that if I don't do all the right things, then maybe God will punish me. And so there's this base idea that exists in religion. And in fact, let me just say this right now, that's the exact opposite of the gospel. Um, the gospel says that we don't do anything to earn God's approval or his love or his grace. It actually says that we are approved, that we are loved, that we are accepted by God. And then anything that we happen to do after that is an expression of love and appreciation. So the gospel is the exact opposite of religion. So these individuals during this particular time and what Jesus is continually confronting, they're living in this context of religion. I'm accepted because I obey. So the disciples, they're just beginning to understand this and they, they're walking with Jesus and they see this guy over on the side and they just say, well, what did he do? Or was it his parents that did something? Why would this bad thing happen to this person? Like, was it him or somebody else? So Jesus, understanding this religious worldview, he says, I wanna address this, right? I'm gonna deal with this. In fact, he knows this is how religious people think about suffering and pain in the world. Like, like God must be angry. And so that's why this happened. And so they ask the question and Jesus says, well, I'm gonna answer this, but I'm gonna answer it in a way you never expected. And, and as he answers this question, as he offers a solution to this, he actually makes a massive proclamation and Jesus leverages this moment to connect everything that he's been doing to what's happening here. It is absolutely beautiful. So, so look with me at this. In verse three, Jesus answers them and he says, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, right? He disconnects it from that. He says, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then in verse four, he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work and then listen to verse five. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So I want you to catch that last part. I am the light of the world. So here's this festival that's going on and there are these flames that are burning in the night over Jerusalem and everyone is seeing the light of Jerusalem and Jesus in the middle of this festival of light looks at these people and says, I, that might be the light of Jerusalem, but he says, I illuminate the world. I am the light of the world. This is such a beautiful, amazing moment. This is Jesus trying to proclaim something about who he is. So I illuminate the world and I let people see what's real and what's true and what's life-giving. That's what I'm here for. I'm gonna show you. It is not about hollow religion. It is not about obedience to empty practices. It's about me and I'm the light. 
so then Jesus turns his attention to this man who's been blind from birth. And he tells his disciples, he says, this man is about to become a picture, a living illustration of who I am and what God is doing in the world. That's what he says to them. I'm gonna, this guy, the reason this man is in this condition, the reason we're here right now is because this guy's gonna be a living example. And, and let me just say, I wanna, I wanna clarify a misunderstanding. He's not saying, I placed this guy here sovereignly. Like I decided thousands of years ago that when I came to the earth, there would be this guy who was sitting in this particular place so that I could like let him live through a life of misery and I could perform this miracle. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. He's saying, this man is every man. This man is every man. And that everyone who has ever experienced brokenness, the human condition of brokenness can be an example of God's goodness and grace in the world. That's what he's getting at. And so he's clearly, he's confronting the religiosity. He's confronting the moralism. And he's saying, no, 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 this guy represents what I'm really all about. This person in his brokenness is gonna show you who God is and what I am all about. This isn't about what he's done. This isn't about what you've done. This is about what I do. That's what Jesus is saying. So then we read this, verse six. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and he came back seeing. So, so, so Jesus, I just want you to get this. Jesus spits. Jesus spits so much that he can make mud. This isn't like Jesus spitting a little bit. This is Jesus spitting and spitting over and over again into the dust. And, and, and he makes mud out of this. And let me just say, um, not only does this make zero sense, but it's absolutely disgusting. Uh, when you see this, when you think about what's happening, that Jesus is spitting, making mud with his spit in the dust, and then wiping it on this guy's face, it's absolutely disgusting when you think about this. He, he smears it on his eyes and then he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. I, I have to tell you, all the years I've read this, um, I often wonder, did this man go wash in faith or was he just so grossed out he wanted to get the mud off of his face? Like, was that what he was actually doing? Like, I gotta go do something. So whether I believe or not, I'm just gonna clean myself up here because this is so disgusting. But, but, but here's the question that arises from this. Um, this makes no sense in the natural spitting in some dirt, making a paste and rubbing it on someone's eyes. Um, this shouldn't work. It makes no sense in the natural. And it's, it would never in our minds bring hope to a hopeless situation or help to a helpless situation. So the question is this, did Jesus just do something that made zero sense in our minds to bring healing to a broken situation? spit and dust, mud on a man's eyes. To the natural mind, this makes no sense. But let me ask you this. What if Jesus did something else that made no sense in the natural to bring healing to a hopeless situation? When, when you start thinking about this, doesn't this sound like the cross to you? I mean, Jesus does something that on the surface is, is like incomprehensible 
and completely outside of our control, our understanding, what we would ever do to make possible what he makes possible. And he brings healing to humanity. So so Jesus, he tells his disciples, he's basically saying this, this man represents every man and I am the light of the world. And then this man who has never seen the light of day finally does for the first time in his life. And And in the same way, Jesus says, I will give light. The way I've given light to this individual, I will give light to everyone who will have it. This guy sees the light. Then that brings a question, and that's what about everybody else? So this happens. And when Jesus does this, because there's a feast and because people are in the city of Jerusalem, there's all sorts of people that are going to hear about what's happening. And so how do they respond to this? It's actually a really important part of the story because what happens next is very telling. In fact, It's built around questions. All of a sudden, there's questions that begin to arise and lots of people are asking questions and and dialoguing about what's taking place. And through this process, what we see are there are four different responses to what Jesus does. There's four different groups of people or individuals that represent four kinds of response that we can have to Jesus when he begins to move and work. And so I want you to see the first one. What's the first response? Well, verse eight, when the man comes back and he can see, it says that the neighbors... And those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. And others said, well, no, but, but he's like him. Like he looks like this guy. And then he kept saying, I'm the man. He just, he's, no, I'm the one. Trust me, I'm the guy. And so they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? And he said, I don't know. So this first group, the neighbors, um, that's what we're going to call them. They are dumbfounded. They're just saying, is this the same guy? Like, how did this happen? They're confused by all of this. And notice what they're interested in. This is very telling. They actually ask the question, how did this happen to you? Um, They're not celebrating the good things that have taken place in this man's life. They're just, how did this happen? They're interested in the mechanics of the miracle. What are the mechanics of the miracle? How did this take place? They're not interested in the meaning of the man behind it. They're not seeing any of this. They're blind to this. All they want to know is how did this happen? But they're ignorant of what actually is behind this. And so they don't know what to do. And because they don't know what to do, they take this man to the Pharisees and the Pharisees really represent the second response to this for us. We see this in verse 13. It says, they brought to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Of course it was. If you've been with us in the series, you know that Jesus is doing this intentionally on the Sabbath. So he does this on the Sabbath and it says, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. There was conversation, argument happening. And so they said in verse 17, they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. So Jesus does this on the Sabbath and intentionally violates the rules of, of the Pharisees, the religious rules, he violates them by bringing wholeness to this guy's life. And notice that the response of the Pharisees isn't about the mechanics. It's about the obedience to tradition. 
Um, they, they question, where could this guy come from? Like, even though he's just made a guy who, who couldn't see, able to see, even though he just healed this and brought, brought, brought wholeness to this individual's life, where could this person possibly come from because he healed on the Sabbath? Like, who would break the Sabbath even to do something good? Like, why would you break a religious rule? This sort of reminds me, years ago, I had a friend and his name was Kevin. And uh, uh, he, he passed away a while ago, but he was one of the greatest guys. And he and his wife were a part of um, the first church that I started in, in Spokane. And, uh, and he loved Jesus and he loved the church and he loved his family and he loved his friends. He was just such an amazing guy. Um, but he also had these really big earrings in his ears and he had all sorts of tattoos up and down his arms and on his body. And he shaved his head bald and kind of looked like a biker. He's kind of the guy that if you ran into him in a dark alley, you'd probably turn and walk the other way really quickly. In fact, on the surface, you would never guess uh, what he was like beneath that surface. You would have all sorts of conclusions. And I'll never forget there was this one day when somebody in our church, somebody else who really loved the church and really loved Jesus, they came to me and they said, I need to confess something to you. And I said, yeah, what is it? And they said, I've judged Kevin. And I realized I've been judging people all of my life because of how he looks. And as I've gotten to know him and see his love for Jesus and his love for the church and his love of people, I've been really convicted and, I've, and I realize I've been judgmental. I've allowed things that I see on the surface to judge a person's heart. It, it just reminds me of this moment. You, you, you can imagine um, hearing the Pharisees saying like, uh, in a day like today, like how, how can you do God's work when, when you dress like that? Or how can you do God's work when, when you hang out in those places with those people? Or how could you have those tattoos or those piercings? How could you actually be doing good for Jesus with those things? How could you like that kind of music or that volume? How could you do those things? You could imagine the Pharisees wrestling with those kinds of things. How could that be God? He healed on the Sabbath. See, they miss the meaning because of their own religious hangups. They're missing Jesus, which then brings us to the third response to who Jesus is, and it's in verse 18. It says this, it says, the Jews did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight uh, until they called the parents of the man. So basically they just go, you know, we don't believe this is true. So let's go find his parents. And so they find the parents of the man who had received his sight and ask them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Um, so they get them and go like, would you explain this? How did this happen to your son? And this next part is really interesting because the parents do this. They say, yeah, this is our son, um, but we actually don't know how he can see. And they punt. They say, he's old enough. Why don't you just ask him? Ask him. He's of age. Actually, this is what, exactly what they say. And John says this, if you read the book of John right here in your Bible, it actually says they said this knowing that if they validated Jesus, if they actually confirmed this, that they'd be outcasts, that they would be ostracized, that socially this would be like social suicide for them. So, so they just basically get nervous and say, no, we, we can't validate Jesus. So why don't you just go ask our son? Because we don't want to be implicated in all of these things that are taking place. And they evade the question. They don't want to be disrupted. Even though they saw their son healed, the implications of validating Jesus's work were so socially significant, would have made them so uncomfortable. Their lifestyle would have, would have changed that they just said, we don't want to be uncomfortable. And so they just kick it to him, which leads us to the fourth response. And that's this man who was born blind. 
the Pharisees, they go back to him and they ask him about the whole thing again. And, he's, and he basically says this. He says, listen, I, I don't know what to tell you, but, and, and then he, he says one of the most iconic lines in all of the New Testament. I love this. In verse 25, he answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. Talking about Jesus. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Like basically he goes, listen, look at me. You can't argue with the results. Like, like, like maybe you people have been able to see all of your lives, but I have not. And now I suddenly can. Let that be your explanation. So they begin questioning him even more. They begin digging in. And this is where this guy actually becomes one of my favorite personalities in all of the Bible. Um, l- listen to this, verse 26, they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already. I love this, he's, just, he's getting irritated. He says, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you wanna hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Um, this might be the most sarcastic person in the entire Bible. Basically just saying, listen, I already told you this. Uh, do you want to be his disciples too? When he says this, he knows he's setting them off. He knows this is going to be irritating to them. And it does, it irritates them. And look what happens next. Verse 28, they revile him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. And so they make this distinction. They, they, they verbalize what everybody already knew. They weren't into who Jesus is. And then verse 29, he says, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And I love this because right now, this guy in this moment, he's just been healed. He's just experienced this miracle. He turns up the heat on the Pharisees. I love this because this is exactly what you do when you have trusted and you have obeyed, and you have been impacted by Jesus, this is the kind of thing you do. So check this out. Verse 30, the man answers. When they say, we don't know where this man comes from, he goes, why, this is an amazing thing. (laughs) You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Like, I love this. This is so great. He's like, really? You really don't know where he comes from. Like, you see what he's done, and you don't know. And then he continues on, verse 31. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. I want you to catch what's in verse 32 here. Never since the world began has it ever been heard that the eyes of a man born blind were opened? Never. But then look at the response. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. So when they say you were born in utter sin, you know what they're doing? they're defaulting to the same religiosity that this conversation started with, right? They're going back and they're, they're going back to the question the disciples were asking. They're stuck in their religious thinking. They believe that this man was born this way for a reason. It was something you did or something your parents did. You were born in, in utter sin. You're unacceptable. And so even though you can see now, we know where you came from and they reject him. In other words, they say this, who do you think you are teaching? us. 
So they cast him out and, and Jesus goes and he finds him. And I love this because there's a conversation that takes place in verse 35. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And then we see this fourth response. We see it, verse 38. It says this, he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He believed. He, of all of these different people, he believed. And then Jesus says something that reveals the ultimate irony of all of this. Verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And let me just say, it's, it's difficult to miss the irony of these four responses. Every person who had physical sight in this story, the neighbors, the parents, the Pharisees, all of those, they could not see that Jesus was the son of God. The only one who could see him for who he truly was, was the one guy who was blind. So, so after all of these questions, questions from neighbors and questions from Pharisees, from the man born blind, from Jesus himself, this narrative eventually, what it's doing is it's prompting a question for you and I. All of this is, is questions. And then there's a question that just sort of lands in front of us. And it's this, do you really see Jesus? Do you really see Jesus? Do, do you really... Do you, do you really see him or do you evade the hard questions? Do you evade the hard moments for the sake of your status or for the sake of your comfort, sort of like the parents did? Or, or, or do you just defend tradition and so you just sort of hold Jesus at a distance and you don't really lean in to what he might be doing now in this moment with new wine and, and new wineskins? Is there something about that, that that you just sort of bristle towards what he's calling you to? Do, do you resist Jesus because of your own pride? Is there something about you that says, I don't want to be dependent on another person. I don't want to be weak minded and say, I actually need Jesus. What is it? Like, do you really see Jesus? Do you really see him for who he is? See, there's a line, there's a line that's being drawn in the sand in this passage. And this man who was in the dark at the beginning and in the light in the end, he is this microcosm of everyone, every man. It's this illustration for humanity. We are all born blind. We are born without the ability to see. And yet we, like the neighbors and the parents and the Pharisees, we witness the works of Jesus and we're given a choice. And the choice, it really centers on this principle. Truly seeing Jesus happens when we move from observation to participation. If you really want to see Jesus, if that's something you really desire, that happens when you move from a place of just sort of observing Jesus, like, like the neighbors or like the parents or like the Pharisees, and you actually begin to participate with Jesus the way this man did. Truly seeing Jesus happens when you move from observation to participation. The, the, in fact, let me, let me just share this, and I'm, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with this, but there's a part of this story that's been hanging with me for the last couple of months. I've been reading ahead, obviously, in John. And, um, and there's this part that I haven't been able to let go of. There's this one part of the story. I'd never really seen it before this way. And, and so I want to go back for just a moment. 
you know, we always have fun and kind of laugh about this moment when Jesus spits and makes mud and smears it on the guy's face. But we often miss the significance of what happens next in this moment. So I want you to imagine this with me. Um, Jesus puts mud on his face. He covers his eyes and he puts it on there. And then he tells him, he says, I want you to go to the pool of Siloam and I want you to wash there. But he doesn't take him by the arm and lead him. He doesn't walk with him. He just says, go. Go to the pool and wash. And and for the first time recently, I I just found myself, I found myself imagining the journey of this man. Like here here he's been blind all of his life and and this man spreads this stuff on his face and tells him he's going to be healed. And and, and then he just begins stumbling. He's stumbling through the crowds and he's bumping into people and, and uh, who knows, farm animals, whatever. He's tripping over steps. He's trying to navigate his way. It, he's probably asking for directions. I mean, just imagine that you're blind and you're in the bustle of the city of Jerusalem during a festival and somebody has just told you to go to some other place in your blindness to wash. And so this man is just sort of fumbling in the darkness, trying to find his way but he's doing it out of obedience. You know, we have, we have no idea how far he traveled. I don't know how far this was from the place Jesus told him this to the place that he had to go, but, but he eventually he gets there. And I just imagine this man, after finally getting there, he gets down in his blindness and he kneels down and he begins to wash the water on his face and, and begins to clean his eyes. And as he washes his eyes, suddenly there's light shining in the darkness for the first time and he sees, he sees. So now when I, when I look at the story and I see the response of all of these different people, I can't help but see that the one for whom real sight was given, there was a journey to that sight that there was a journey to receive what Jesus was offering. There there was this gap between Jesus telling him, you're gonna be healed, and then actually experiencing that that healing and receiving it. And, and, And his experience of what Jesus was offering, it was relative to his willingness to take a walk in the dark, not knowing. Like he had to be willing. If I'm gonna experience what Jesus is telling me, I'm gonna have to walk in the darkness, in my blindness with uncertainty, but I'm gonna keep believing and trusting that in the middle of this, he's here with me. And when he did that, his eyes were opened. So this entire story, you know, it's, it's just, it's riddled with questions. Disciples asking Jesus, Jesus asking this man, neighbors, the Pharisees, the parents, all of everybody just asking questions. And the questions sort of start shallow, but then it just leads us to the depths. This man, while he was wise and careful, he was completely honest about his condition and he was completely honest about Jesus. Um, you know, I, I can't help but wonder right now with the world the way it is, if there isn't a question that's being asked of us right now, is this current cultural climate actually a question that's being thrown before us? Are we being prompted to wrestle with questions? Are we being prompted to wrestle with with, with the meaning of our lives and where we find value and where we find meaning? Are we being asked this? Is, this? is this a season? Is this a time in which Jesus is saying, no, I'm inviting you to see. I want you to see 
where you'll find life. And maybe we have to walk through some darkness together. Maybe we have to just trust him in this, but maybe on the other side of this, our eyes are gonna be opened to things that we never saw before. I, I know it feels dark right now. I know it feels dark right now. I know for my family, um, you know, we, we laugh at moments and then there's moments of, of real fear. And uh, I know as I talk to various people in my life, we all have varied responses to what's happening. But I just wonder in this, are we being invited to walk in the darkness toward the healing that Jesus has for us so that you and I can not just see the light, but that we could see the light of the world. Amen. I'm going to offer the benediction right now. Um, And so if you want to receive this wherever you are, maybe sitting on a couch or at your desk or uh, maybe with family around, I'm just going to invite you to open your hands and and hold them out to receive. That's just something in tradition that we do. It's just a a point of saying physically, I want to receive what God has for me now. So let let me offer this to you. May you lean into the season of relative darkness the way that this man leaned into the walk to that pool of water. And may you move from being an observer of Jesus to one who actually journeys with him. And may your eyes, may your eyes be opened that you would see the light of the world in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for taking time to be a part of this. Thanks so much. Um, By the way, your generosity, giving to the church, helping us do all the things we do. We so appreciate it. Um, All of you, please connect with us online. Send us emails. We want to reach out to you. We want to connect with you. And if you want to help solve problems in our community right now, we're here for you. Let's keep being the church in these days. We'll see you guys soon.